Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Ryan Gibson, joined by Alex Collegian. Today we have Tony Jaswinski with us, uh, screenwriter, producer, producer, director, director. Uh, wow, novelist, keep going. Like triple, twit, triple, Hold quadruple on. threat. No, novelist, playwright. And, and, it's, it's, and my first podcast, too. Uh, to oh, <laughs> podcast virgin. Wait, wait, I wasn't done. Tarantula hawk head cheerleader. Oh, yeah. For the, from go. the Boca Raton tarantula hawk. 10,000 people yeah, just shut off. If, if we were there at 10,000, Tony. <laughs> That's a real thing, I gang. would be happy to have them shut it off. <laughs> I'm Alex Collegian, creator of Project Greenlight and many other things you've never heard of. Um, so Tony and I... Uh, thank you for coming on, Tony. Yeah, and, it's a maiden voyage. I'm very honored. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure. Our backstory is we both went to NYU film school, met in film school. Tony was in the writing program. I was in the production program. Um, I'll let you take it from there, but uh, we go way back, and we're still standing. Uh, yeah, well, I'll give you the short, short version. Um, Alex and I definitely met. At NYU, um, I was in dramatic writing. Uh, had a lot of uh, good years there um, too, <laughs> but um, I think everybody back then was sort of writing plays. So I, you know, the, the screenwriting department is very small back then. Now I think there's like two thousand uh, kids uh, in the DWP. But um, uh, you know, I, I, I graduated there. Then I was in the wilderness for a few years in retail, um, and then. Thank God for the Nichols. I won the Nickel Fellowship uh, after submitting about eight scripts in the last eight years. And um, God bless uh, Greg Beal and Joan and the whole gang there. Um, it's a wonderful competition. And that's kind of what broke me in, in a way. And for anybody who's interested, and I assume some of you are, uh, the Nichols Fellowship is one of the, the most prestigious writing uh, contests that you can win in entertainment. And in our show notes, you will have a link to that. Um, okay, so Tony, what I love about that whole story up to now is uh, the shit job before. <laughs> yeah, the world before. of Lauren Taylor, the wonderful world of Lauren Taylor. <laughs> Which doesn't exist anymore. They died it? last week. Yeah, they're, they, they actually they, did. They dead. actually did die. Like two. so, Tony, you outlived them. Remember that time you were in the stock room and you like one day, motherfuckers. Yeah, well, all us writers, all the writers listening right now, realize we all talk to ourselves on the street and in, in storerooms. So yeah, one day it's gonna happen. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we grit our teeth while we're talking to Karen, asking for the extra large. Yeah. Now, Tony, this is an odd left field question, but I, I think it's important for people to know, to for honesty's sake. You you knew a bunch of people, obviously, in school. What what's the percentage that made it out of Lord and Taylor? <laughs> Are we saying yeah, NYU not... or Lord and Taylor? I don't know. I mean, that's that's an even better. By the way, that is a better question. Yeah. So, uh, well, a lot of people, I, I, a lot of people think, in retail, my... they were they were very creative people. They went on to different things and their different venues. So I give them props for that. Um, look, look. I mean, my whole story is like I had to stay in New York because I couldn't go back to Florida because there were, it was a business there. I, I was in debt. I couldn't go to LA. So I stayed in New York and retail was the job that you can, 
you know, get hired within a couple of days and try to make a living That's if right. you live in Jersey City. So, but, That's you know, right. doing that, it's, it's like there's there's a cliche and there's a reality about like shit work makes you dream better, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah. that's, uh, yeah. I think Alex, somebody wants to tell us, oh, we stay hungry, you know, and like we, the, the money comes and the money goes, but I always see ourselves in the wilderness and that's how I've always kind of lived my career in a way. Um, I'm glad for the times, uh, you know, I was, struggling because it sucks but it definitely like gives you time to contemplate your stories and your ideas and go from there Char- and, character builder well yeah. definitely don't, no pun intended but also uh there's a sense of verisimilitude that you don't get from somebody who just straight goes from the film school into making a video making a commercial making their first feature yeah. they they haven't lived life and all their references are from other movies, right? I mean, we've seen it a million times. Um, I also think that you have a deep sense of, or a profound sense of gratitude. Um, your attitude about the whole business is very healthy. You never once act like, you know, like it, you're entitled to anything. You're very grateful for every opportunity you get. And you're very grounded about it because you know that it could go away tomorrow. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think it's a realization thing. I think it's just in the moment. It's like I'm stoked every time I'm on a movie set. You know, I mean, I'm a kid <laughs> in a candy store. It never gets old for me. Um, the meetings sometimes <laughs> like, get a little old, and, and and you know the Fiji water bottle kind of thing. Uh, but that's sort of going <laughs> away now. Now we have the zooms of the world. But I, I, I'm I'm still think this is a you know I'll always think this is just this sort of a. A, a, a wonderful business and you know yeah like, yeah, yeah I, I, I but even okay so the meetings get the same but isn't it isn't there a little thrill from going on a lot like just like there, there always lot? is it's like you know you, yeah. you go to you know you you go to paramount a lot and it just feels like every day is the first day you've ever stepped on a slot, you know, and th- that's not think- just me talking, that's producers that we've had conversations and stuff. It's like, yeah. you're, you're perpetually like a 16 year old kid when you go to a movie studio, I think. And mm-hmm. I, I, I really don't, you know, maybe the music industry, but it's really hard to find another business where you just feel you have, you have this ridiculous smile on your face when you come into like a movie studio. Yeah. I, I think from personal experience, also cults, that's right and i I also think that you know from experience alec you know we can all speak from experience being on set i think everyone to a person feels that exact same way when uh when they first come on any set any new set you know no matter how long the hours are because they are very long yeah absolutely Um, and like there could be a whole another hour segment of just about like making movies but it really feels like summer camp right guys i mean you go there and you get you meet people there's gossip some people hook up some people don't and you all leave each other you hardly ever see each other again until like you have a next show or something and you know yeah well that what who who called it high school with money (laughs) back to the stock room so um just let everybody just close your eyes and picture Tony in the 90s wearing. We'll you have know, a link to his picture in the 90s. Wearing, yes, wearing we Chandler Bing outfit on rollerblades, <laughs> blading to 
a giant department store to. So you were on a typewriter though. So just to to, to go back. Yeah, well, it was an electric my, typewriter. It wasn't like the old school Hemingway yeah, thing. Though, but I mean, come on, it was classic. So yeah. guys, just picture. It was like the only thing missing was like hayseed in the back of his ears. He was he had a hand. Um, one of those type, uh, it was like a brother or something. One of those old typewriters with a with a handle on it. Still, still cool. And, and still the, cool. The hard shell case on that. Yes, yeah. yes. And you pop it off, and then and then he slept on a mattress. I mean, you want to talk about? I mean, that's like a French poet level of like an artist. Yeah, that's what you do right? when you're 21 years old. So the Nichols, uh, as we said, was a very prestigious or is a very prestigious award. Um, did you get it on your first try, or how did that work? Uh, no, I mean, like I, I submitted eight scripts um and yeah we talked about this once before like i would get letters back from greg and the gang about making the quarterfinals but he would have these little notes next to the form letters about i really thought the script was riveting keep going you know and it's it, it, it's it's funny because you tend to throw those ideas away but but he would have these little notes next to the form letters about i really thought the script was riveting keep going, you know, and it's, it, it, it's, it's funny because you tend to throw those ideas away, but when you see little sentences and notes like that, it, it does make you keep going. Like, you know, I went and had a tequila after like I read that. Cause I'm like, Oh, well somebody actually read my script, you know, with the 30 bucks I sent in, but kind of liked it. Um, I couldn't tell if I had a shot in the business, but I didn't know what else to do. You know, because that's all I would do is write and do retail. And it was going to go one direction. I was going to be a buyer for, you know, Saks, which would have been a good job. And I could have gone somewhere else from there. Or I would have stuck to my guns and been a writer. And I guess it's a long way of saying, like, those little notes that they put into the, the letters sort of got me going. So in the eighth time, I finally won with a horror script, which I don't think the Nichols ever had a horror movie win, um, which was called Interstate, which is a bit of a road movie. But um, that was really, you know, um, humble for me, uh, humbling for me that, you know, a horror film kind of made it in because I've always been born and bred on horror movies and thrillers. And um, I was just really extremely, um, you know, uh, overjoyed, I guess is the only word I can say. that I not only got into the nickels, but a horror script got into too. And that's sort of what launched the career, so to speak. I love that script, by the way. Uh, I believe that it's been in development since then, right? Yeah. It's, well, John Landis and- once said he, he wrote, you know, um, uh, American Wolf in London when he was still trying to like sell scripts. And that was the first thing that sold, but it never sold big, but he kept getting re-optioned. And, um, he kept getting knocks on his door from it. And it was the same thing with this script. Um, it's getting close to finally getting made after all these years, but um, it's always the script that never stops giving, you know? And I, that's one advice I can, I can give anybody who wants my advice is like, don't be worried if your script doesn't sell for a big spec price or a price in general. If it's optioned sooner or later, like real people and good people and talented people who actually want to make a movie will option money for your script and they'll continue to pay you, you know, for a few years and it can kind of keep you going. And that's a good example of, of a movie that's always sort of, you know, a script I wrote back in the day, but it, it, it really, really kept me going those first 10 years. 
And just to be clear, Tony, that we're talking the script has been optioned and optioned again for over. Yes, it's had multiple options. I don't think it's ever outright sold um, to a uh, a studio, but um, it was always an indie horror film. So you know, there's there was always a, a producer and a general producer out there who's like, I'm serious about trying to get this going, and they they pony up with a certain amount of money that you know makes it legit. And, um, you know, it, it, it makes me, you know, it, it gives me confidence in the industry that outside of the gates of studios, there are still people that are on, you know, their computers and phones and Starbucks that are working their asses off to actually get somebody's movie going. So that's another part of Hollywood that people don't talk about. Uh, yeah, that's, it's, I, I think it's good for everyone to know. Um, so moving forward, what was, and Alex, I think you were trying to get to this is like, what was his first big, what was the greenlit moment? Right. I, well, I, I mean, I, that's a huge one. I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, I mean, take us through the process, but I know that the part of the function of the Nichols is to introduce you to uh, agents and managers, right? Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the, the Nichols gives you a stipend of a certain amount of money, um, provided that you write the script for a year, you know, and I think you get increments of the money every quarter. Um, but who doesn't want to write when they want a contest for writing a script? You know, I mean, I, I, I was I was very fortunate. Look, I, I, I went to Warner Brothers a week after winning the Nichols um, because I hooked up with great people and, and good managers and agents. And they brought me into rooms and I sold a pitch, um, to, um, you know, the wonderful Ronnie Harlan back in the day. Um, and I went from there to, you know, big studio projects. Uh, but I also know that there's a lot of Nichols winners out there that are more geared to the independent side of, cinema and the Nichols has facilitated their careers and they still can make the movies they want to make. I mean, I was never a person who wants to direct my next film. Um, I was always a screenwriter, hundred percent. There's a lot of people that won the Nichols that, you know, wanted to really get into the process of directing. And there's, it's also launched a lot of careers for great directors too, for writers, directors. But, um, you know, my, my whole thing to, to go into this was to get into the business and the Nichols definitely got me into the rooms. And from there, I think it was my Nichols weekend coming out there, accepting the awards. I actually happened upon, you know, selling a, 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 a spec and I got into the business from there. And, um, you know, it, it really is about sort of make your own, you know, I mean, this, this Hal Cantor, this, this wonderful comedian that the Nichols once said, you know, congratulations, but don't pat yourselves on the back too much. It's like, you know, you just stepped out of um, uh, oblivion into obscurity. And I think every, everybody's like, I mean, what I took from that is like, congratulations. You know, you're in, you're, you're through the gates now. Now it's what you make of it. It is, it is your own. And a lot of people. The work is just beginning. That's right. And, but that's also exciting for somebody who wants to get into you know, the, the career of screenwriting or, or filmmaking or what have you. But, but the fact is you're always in the wilderness. You're always in the wilderness. Yeah, that's, uh, that's totally true. And, and you're a hero today and a, and a donkey the next, I mean, that's the good and bad of it. But, um, 
Okay, so I, I think that's. I mean, that's uh, been. I, I don't have a list, but some of the Nichols winners and runner-ups are sort of a who's who of writers in Hollywood. So that's certainly a great way to do it. Um, I don't know. I mean, when we were in film school, we were kind of of two minds. I mean, I, I, I think the friends that we made there, I mean, including you are some of my best friends in my life. On the other hand, I think after like a semester or a year, we were like, let's go make our own movie, man. Do you remember that? We, you wrote your first script and, uh, we tried to produce it and we got Ethan Hawke and Nancy Tannenbaum, the producer of Sex, Lies and Videotape. And we were, we were going for it, but, um, what happened with everybody's this? Everybody's making independent <laughs> movies back then. So it's like, yeah. So it's, New York. Yeah, so, yeah. so right. So the, go, you got to tell the story well, now. Okay, okay. Well. It was like 1991 or two. Tony was an intern for Nancy Tannenbaum, who at that time was like one of the, you know, like royalty of independent films. She did Sex, Lies, and Videotape and discovered Soderbergh, discovered Greg Matola, all these very great directors. And she took a shine to Tony. And so he showed her his first script that he wrote was, was sort of loosely based on our lives called Village Idiots. And it was about living in the West Village. And... Um, Got it to her. She liked it. Uh, she, I don't know how we, I guess we just asked because we were sort of ballsy and we just said, we want to make this movie with you, Nancy. And she's like, okay, you got to, you got to raise money first. So I'm going to get you with Sheila Jaffe and George Ann Walken, the biggest casting directors in New York, which they really were. They were doing, they would end up doing the Sopranos and just everything else. They're still working, uh, you know, all the time. And uh, they were nice enough to take us on and they got us a incredible group of young New York actors, including Ethan Hawke, who lived in the neighborhood and could relate. He, he actually, we lived on Waverly and he lived on Waverly and it was just a, a occurrence of events. Yeah. And he was great. And we did this reading in the NYU, like some studio and we took it over and had a bunch of producers and investors and did the whole run. And I remember... Everybody was into it, and uh, we even had a party at Webster Hall, and we were on our way. And then, I don't wait, know. Wait, you guys sell? You guys were celebrating? We were like trying to hustle like investors and producers. Oh, you had a party for to raise money? Yes. Oh, I see. What including yeah. like Jason Bloom, right? Who was then like you know third schmuck from the left at Miramax. I mean, all kinds of people who are still around today. But I. I I, I forget how we found out, but Ethan Hawke turned to one of us. It might have even been me. Maybe I blanked it out. And he's like, you know, I really like you guys and I really like your script, but it's very similar to something that I just got last week that I committed to. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, it's this thing called Reality Bites. It's Hello, you've reached the winter of our discontent. making this documentary about my friends but it's really about people who are trying to find their own identity without having any real role models or heroes or anything and it seems like your friends would be perfect for that it's kind of about gen x kids and like trying to figure themselves out and whatever and yours is sort of like the new york version of that. So <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, in like five thousand young kids were writing gen x scripts at the time too so yeah, yeah. so you know coulda woulda shoulda you should have said it in california it's just funny how that's 
But that, but that's, I, I mean, that that's a good, that's a perfect example of a moment that's worth, you know, it's weight and gold. It's like, okay, yeah. you actually had these producers, you had, you know. And we were 20. Yeah. And we, we, were, and, and, we were literally you know, 20. Sometimes there's power in the naivety. Is naivety, is that, I think so? Yeah. yeah. Because yeah, naivety, you're, you're yeah. not, you're not smart enough to where you realize you shouldn't say this. And I think I always admire <laughs> young people for that one the fact when they just want to throw something out because if you arrogant refuse to do anything else because you want to follow your passion, you're going to do it sooner or later, you know? Um, and I was very happy that we had that night, you know, and I, I wasn't sure. First of all, I, I wasn't, I, was, I didn't think the script was probably strong enough to get us to the next level. It could have done like a pass. That's my bad. But I also think that, you know, there's always a reason for everything and it was a step in the right direction. And that's a moment that you're always going to have. And a lot of people that are listening to this, you know, they've already had that moment. They're going to have that moment. So you have to treasure those moments because they're all building blocks into like the, the greater picture of everything. And it's what you said about validation, right? You got that letter from the Nichols who see, let's say conservatively thousands of scripts a year and they took the time that, you know, these, these individuals took the time to write to you and say, it's good. Keep going. You didn't win. Absolutely. And going. there's like, we're going to, you know, talk about Spielberg in a few minutes, but the idea is like, even, even these guys, when they were kids, they needed validation to get them sort of moving forward. And that's, that's a generational thing. That's never going to end. It, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's a community of creative people that are always trying to, to find some kind of validation, but not in a vain way, in a way to keep them sort of yeah. going, to keep the, the sword moving forward so they can put something better into the world. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for that, man. I don't think that ever goes away. I, th- I, I don't know. I don't care how old you are. Even, I think even Steven or Spielberg in his plus the his internet. Glory, I mean, whatever, yeah. like it rise never, and grind, bro. Like you still need an individual that you respect that you want to please. Right. That says, "Attaboy." If you get a five sent five word sentence in a margin of a of a, of a script that says "keep going," you're yeah. you can Absolutely. you can live. That's your oxygen for yeah. like a year, right? And that's you know having. Uh, I mean, okay, Tony. Like, let, let's talk about the the dark side of validation because, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get pretty much resounding good reviews for Greenlight. And I think that was entirely because of the love affair that people were having with Matt and Ben at the time. But uh, I recently made a movie and I saw how other reviews are written. written. So how does it feel when you get recognition that people are writing about your work, but maybe the review is not necessarily the nicest? Like, how do you take Uh, it in stride I mean, you need need like a thick skin. I'm sort of in between, somewhere between thin and thick. Um, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I I appreciate reviews that are, um, you know, that are smartly written and, you know, genuine about like what they feel, whether it's good or bad. I don't like snarky stuff. Um, I I have a problem with three people getting together and being snarky about something. I, I also think that there's power in somebody to uh, – if there's four people in the room and three people all love something, I feel like there has to be somebody who says, 
it's great, but here's the problem. You know, you needed to center for a second to sort of yeah, keep yeah. people going in the right direction. And I think smart reviews and smart critics will never trash something. I mean, it's, it's hard to trash something unless it's complete shit. I mean, because there's a lot of people, and I know people who go to see the movies don't, they, they, they can care, they don't care about who's below the line or who's like behind the camera. But a lot of people work their ass off to actually get good shots and make something work. And if it doesn't cut at the end of the day, it's not everybody's fault. But the fact is there's always something good about some movie where somebody tries. And like some of these filmmakers that you guys are going to have on the show and, and discuss, you know, through their wardrobe or whatever you want to call it, it's like there's always two movies that, okay, you know, they always rank worst to best kind of thing. And even some of the worst movies, there's something interesting in them. It's like somebody's trying for something. So I guess what I'm saying is like even certain, you know, the, so, sometimes the critic form is an art form. Like you have to sort of read between the lines and sort of think what's good uh, and what they were sort of trying to say. And then there's, you know, the other critics that somehow just, you know, get on the Rotten Tomatoes line and, and they just trash something just to trash it. And um, I can say that because I've, I've, read so many different reviews about movies that I'm like, I didn't think that was that bad, you know? Right. And I also think that there's, there's an industry in critics now. Thank you again for joining us on how I got greenlit. We really appreciate you coming along for the ride. But before we go any further, I'd like to get a little serious with you all for a second. I know you've got plenty on your plate to think about these days, but something that affects all of us is the fact that Mother Nature is taking a beating these days. Wildfires, water shortages, and just plain weird weather are an unfortunate fact of life these days. The truth is, it's only going to get worse over the next few decades. So... You might ask yourself, what can we do? One thing we do is get educated. Next Chapter Podcast and the Clio Institute have teamed up on a podcast called House on Fire, co-hosted by Katrina Irwin, a 24-year-old climate activist, and Caroline Lewis, the founder of the Clio Institute. House on Fire is a youth-centered podcast that takes its name from Greta Thunberg's famous speech. It's youth-focused because, let's face it, us adults are leaving a pretty huge mess to clean up for the next generation. Each episode invites scientists, activists, artists, and more to have important conversations about this complex crisis. And the topics they cover could help you make decisions about how you might want to vote or spend your hard-earned money in the ways that leave behind a better world for those to come. So listen to House on Fire wherever you get your pods to stay informed and involved, or go to thecleoinstitute.org to learn more. Now, let's get back to how I got greenlit. So, Tony, we got a good idea of how you got your personal green light. Most people, well, I know you from a lot of stuff, but I think the, the general audience is going to know you from your mega hit, The Shallows, um, made with our mutual friend, uh, Maddie Lesham.
why don't you give us like, okay, so you're in the business, you're a working screenwriter, you're having some ups and downs, you've gotten some movies made, and you've gotten a, a reputation in the business. So tell us, you was did this start with an assignment? Did you do it with a spec? What was? Well, I mean, no, I mean, I, it looks, there's different, there's different, um, not different screenwriters, but there's different methods that screenwriters use. And I'm not a rewrite person. Um, I, I'm generally like, you know, self, what do they call it? Like self generating. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've, I've always been very, you know, um, fortunate to, to sell specs. And, um, I, I've, I've always stayed within, the realm of thriller and horror just because I think it's great drama. We, we've had this conversation before where, you know, it used to be the redhead stepchild horror, and now it's, it's, you know, class a drama. It's all these sub, these sub sub genres of, you know, indie horror and elegant horror and elevated horror and cultural horror. And I've just always liked the fact that it was exciting. Um, so I wanted to do something with a shark <laughs> and, um, was this your I was guess, this your South Florida up, upbringing? Did you have no? This, well, this is an interesting story because it sort of segues a little into Close Encounters because I've always was a huge admirer of Duel. Um, I think that's one of you know Stephen's best films. Agreed. Uh, and I wanted to sort of figure out after watching a week of Shark Week how to make the shark kind of scary again because there was only shark cartoons and people punching sharks in the nose and. It used to be like, you know, sharks used to be, so there, was, there was a threat. And how do you sort of take all the, all the fat out of these movies that have sort of, you know, made these giant, um, uh, uh, you know, these giant films out of a, a shark movie and, how do and, and you streamline take, it again? How do you take the shark back from the Sharknado, Tony? Yeah, Sharknado is a good reference. And uh, I, I was watching Duel that week, too. And I put the two together. And I'd like to tell you it was my own idea. And it was a brilliant sort of thing out of nowhere. But it was sort of like everybody has like you take two ideas, you put them together, like, oh, that would be really interesting. It's just one person versus a shark. How can you do that? And then is there a Hitchcockian way to where you have set pieces and you're able to, um, to make this person survive? And get back to a shore that she can see a mere 100, 200 yards away. And I thought there's something to that. But I was terrified about trying to write it because it would just come off as an hour long, um, uh, you know, Twilight Zone episode. It feels like I don't know if I could sustain um, that suspense for at least 85 minutes, but it all seemed to to work out at the end. Um, but I, 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 I mean, I should tell you that the original script was in the deep and it was a really hard horror, horror film. I mean, it, you know, it, it had a bit of a darker ending um, and it had some very graphic scenes. And, and, and I think Tom Rothman and, you know, the good people at Sony wanted to find a way to take a mild budget, you know, thriller and make it like sort of a summer movie that can go against, you know, the big marvels of the world, but at the same time, enter, entertain people um, in kind of an accessible way. And I think that's where the shallows kind of went at the end of the day. 
and I think at you know at, at the end I'm 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 very proud of the movie. I think that there's I didn't expect the traction that it would get with young women. Um, you know, there's there's my niece and her friends that that's one of their favorite movies of all time, and I never set out to to make a movie. I'm very happy that um, young people have embraced this movie as one of their films, but I never set out to do that. I was looking to do kind of a, a, a scary riveting shark movie and then sort of move on to the next thing like sci-fi or, or what have you. But um, it's interesting when all those little things fall into place. And um, I think a lot of that comes to luck and timing uh, and the good marketing of movies. But at the end of the day, like I, you know, I, I, I never know what a movie is going to end like at the end and huge props to director, uh, you know, Jama Kulitsera for um, for making this movie work the way it did and for Maddie and Lynn. Um, but that's part of the adventure, too. It's like, how is this all going to edit at the end? And um, how does how does the page the page idea come out to be the film idea? Um, and that's sort of the journey. So, uh, you know, that's. Well, I guess that's a long way of saying, well, that's sort of what broke me really into the bigger echelon of the business. Um, But but, uh, I mean, let's be let's be honest. You were a a known assassin for a while. I mean, people. Well, and a lot lot of writers are. I mean, that's that's sort of a good thing to emphasize is that a lot of writers can go and do careers in this business for for decades without even having something completely produced um, because they're good rewrite artists or they they produce good material. Sometimes it really is sort of luck of the draw if your movie comes out or if it doesn't come out. But um, yeah, I was I was in the business for for quite a while, just writing scripts and some scripts sell and some don't, but they sustain you to where you can make, you know, your, your, your next, your, your next month's rent. So that's, uh, that's good too. Yeah. I mean, uh, you had developed a niche, right. From interstate, uh, your first kind of horror thriller that mixed genres in this interesting way, you created a, a name brand for yourself. I mean, I, I've actually heard, you know, people say like, oh, it feels like a Tony Jaswinski thing. Like you have a very smart, literate, but still genre sensibility that allows for uh, mass appeal, but with characters that are very nuanced and emotionally balanced. It's almost like an indie character put into a bubblegum movie or, you know, their sensibilities. So... People want that. I mean, in the business, people, well, everybody, I think, but, but, you know, look, we could talk for hours about that and that's entirely up to you. One question I just want to have in, in terms of translating page to picture, um, you had mentioned, because we've talked about this before, you and I, but uh, for the audience, um, you know, you have a, you have a very spare style. It's, it's, there's a lot of white on the page, as they say. And you, your words are chosen 
very uh, specifically, but you have a, almost like an artistic lilt. So you you may write a line that's almost like literature uh, to describe a scene or a way a character. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what a few people sort of told me. It's very flattering. I, I think for me, I'm just a sparseness, maybe because I'm lazy or I, I don't want to, or I've done the business for so long to where I know the first person that's going to read this is not going to be Tom Rothman. It's going to be the young executive junior or the assistant who's got to read go through 20 scripts in the weekend so i kind of want them to get them in and out at the same time being able to check off all the boxes on the script that they that they like um so you know if i've heard some people tell me like oh you know there's there's a hemingway poet thing about your descriptions and Again, you know, I can't take a compliment. I think that's very flattering to hear, but I also, that's just the way I sort of get from the first sentence to the end because I just don't want to waste people's time in, in, the, in the read. Yeah, and as Mark Twain once put it, uh, you know, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one, which means <laughs> that right. you're trying to be, you know, you're, you're trying to be humble by saying you don't like writing many words, but it, as if anyone out there has written prose and also written a screenplay, it's there is a trap that people fall in like, oh, there's less words on the page. I could I could do a screenplay faster than a novel. But in fact, it's just a different art. It's almost like haiku. You have to fit a lot of ideas and nuances into really short tight sentences. And, um, there is an art to the layout of the page. I mean, uh, a friend of mine, Scott Alexander, who's written a ton of stuff like people versus Larry Flynn. He says he actually does a draft, which is just page layout. Like he just looks at it. And if it doesn't feel right, he'll cut a word, he'll add a return. He'll play with the formatting just so that the actual feel of the page looks balanced to him every page. So there's something to it, but Tell me, okay, so uh, you've written this beautiful script and you've, you've built this sort of like consensus among the suits and the artists and the producers and the money guys and whatever. How does, is there a, is there a, uh, was there, was there a, a learning moment for you where, and I know this wasn't your first production of one of your films, but this was probably the biggest stakes. Did you, was there a challenge to, work with the producers, with the director? I mean, did you have a, a place at the table or were they like, thank you? Um, yeah, yes and no. This was a bigger movie in a way and they shot most of or all of it in Australia. So they didn't buy my ticket to come out there, but they didn't want to set rewrite anyway. They, they, they pretty much wanted to be with the director and I got the pleasure of watching my movie made across the street. And what that means is sometimes they'll drag you in whether you want to or not and you have to be on set rewrites and that's a whole new learning curve and whole new college too um and sometimes i know, I know like a lot of writers complain like oh i should be on the set and i don't know if you want to be <laughs> you know it's really i mean it's opening yourself up for a lot yeah and there's a, there's a huge anxiousness about it you know and then the directors will look to you like thanks for fucking that up because you know i can't <laughs> get the scene working and like i can see why writers want to hide in paris now like when their scripts are getting made because um it it, it can be really nerve-wracking i think that's why a lot of writers say well i want to be a producer on this too just so you know i've been in the trenches and i've, I've seen movies get made across the street and 
I think that there's there's pros and cons for both and there's highs for both too, but you definitely have there's there's definitely like a tension about seeing your movie there and talking to the actors and trying to figure out, you know, what the end game is to motivations. It, it's it, 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 again, like I was, I was telling you before and I'll sort of let you, you know, go for it after this, but um, there, there's one producer that I, that I really trusted early on a movie, Christy, that um, this producer once told me, look, if you, if you write an elephant, in your script, they're going to have an elephant on the set, you know, and that happened with me when I created my first TV thing and we had a pilot that we're shooting in Vancouver and, and I wrote an elk cause I'm so stupid and I've never been hunting in my life. And I think it, I thought an elk is the same thing as a deer's head. And they actually sent like a $6,000 giant elk head that can't go through a windshield. So I'll always remember, make sure that when you write elk, you want an elk. And that's another thing you learn when you're actually, you know, making a movie on a set as opposed to like writing it in your office or coffee shop or what have you. Because an elk head shows up on set, it can't go through the windshield. So then the next hour is people scrambling around. on all levels trying to find a and, deer yeah, head that can act, that antlers can walk you for 48 hours after you made the wrong choice when you come into the office at six in the morning too. You know? Right. <laughs> and props had to drive three states away to get the elk right. head because they had a deer head that was 10 minutes away. Yeah. And then I had to call the guy up and try to get a half refund and made him feel really bad because he loved that elk and it took up a long time to get that elk head. That's part one of our interview with writer Anthony Jaswinski. Next week, we continue our discussion about his career in film and television. We also talk about his love for the 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, starring Richard Dreyfus, Francois Truffaut, and the incomparable Terry Garr. Thank you for listening. Join Alex Collegian and I next Tuesday on How I Got Greenlit. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.